As I was thinking about what I would like to share with you today, I thought that perhaps we could learn from the scriptures and from the prophets and church leaders about the family. Why this came to my mind was the fact that I would be speaking to people who are starting or soon will be starting the journey of initiating their own families. Sometimes you young people who are beginning this great adventure remind me of the anxious traveler who was, when running to catch a bus, only once inside and seated, thinks to ask, where is this bus going? <laughs> Perhaps if we can learn a little better the marvelous origin and great destination of the family, we can also learn the manner in which you, we should come back to our Father in heaven as a family. As individual, we travel the same path to the Father. But the roles we assume in our family have different ways to convey us down that path. And most of the time, we have more than one role to fulfill. Husband, father, son, wife, mother, or daughter. Each role has different duties. If you will, a different method of transportation in our journey. We shall speak of this in due time. Now let us speak of the origin of the individual and of the family. We believe that the individuals bear a special relationship to deity. Each individual born unto this world has been the actual spiritual son or daughter of God the Father in the pre-existent world of spirits. The first major step upward made by the uncreated entities was entrance into what we call the first state. Here, the intelligence were tabernacle in a body of a spirit matter through birth by heavenly parents. The first presidency declared in a message in November 1909, all men and women are in the similitude of the universal father and mother and are literally the sons and daughters of deity. God is the actual father of the spiritual bodies possessed at that time. This is not a case of creation, but of procreation. Brother B.H. Robert explains, I call attention to this distinction that when in our literature we say God created the spirits of men, it is understood that they were begotten. We mean generation, not creation. Intelligence, which are eternal, uncreated, self-assisting beings, are begotten spirits, and these afterwards begotten men. When intelligence are begotten spirits, they are of the nature of him who begets them, sons of God, and consubstantial with the Father. So when we make reference to members of, of mankind as sons and daughters of God, it is not a symbolic term. Our Heavenly Father is the actual Father of the spiritual bodies of mankind. In this spiritual body, 
can, uh, can be found latent powers inherited from its divine parents, which await maturation, education, training, and experience in many kinds. In 1812, Elder Lorenzo Snow, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, said about these powers, we are born in the image of God, our Father. He begot us like unto himself. There is the nature of deity in the composition of our spiritual organization. In our spiritual birth, our Father transmitted to us the capabilities, powers, and faculties which he himself possessed, as much so as the child of its mother bosom possesses, although in an undeveloped state, the faculties, power, and susceptibilities of the parents. Elder John R. Witzel reaffirmed this concept with these words. Man is one of the eternal imperishable realities of the universe. His story begins in the infinite past, before the earth was made. His eternity reached to the yesterdays as into the tomorrows. He belongs to the endless ages. In the beginning, man was with God, a child of God, begotten by him. He has a divine pedigree in the pre-existing spiritual domain as a son or daughter of the divine father. He increased in knowledge and power and, and grew in his spiritual stature. At length, he was prepared for the earth career and willing to accept his condition. Men is not an accidental or transient invader of the earth. Instead, he is a creature of plan and progress. As a child of God, man partakes of the divine nature of his father. Within him lie germs of infinite development. Potentially, he's a godlike being. Therefore, he may rise eternally toward he the likeness of his Father in heaven. Upward, divine, unending is man's high destiny. What a beautiful and amazing inheritance, the nature of deity in the composition of our spiritual organization, which opens the door to the vision of eternal life and divine destiny. In the family proclamation, to the world, the following is declared. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. So we ourselves, an all living creature, which have life on this earth were once spiritual beings. Call, prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God, as you can find in Alma 13.3. We enter this, the second state of our earthly life to receive a body. So we may, so we may be in a position to perform the purpose outlined in Abraham chapter 3, for example, it says, And there stood one among them that was like unto God, 
And he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is a space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon this may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they who keep the first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep the first estate, and they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. And the Lord said, Who shall I send? And one answered, Like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not, not his first state. And at that day, many follow after him. Did you notice the important concepts which are mentioned in these verses? For example, there stood one among them that was like unto God. We are talking of Jesus Christ, the firstborn, and under the direction of the Father and by the power, the Creator. And we will prove them herewith. The word prove is a key word, fundamental to understanding the events, circumstances, and philosophy of life on this earth. Proving is an eternal principle. We have been proven before, you remember, they who keep the first state shall be added upon. We go through the same process now on this earth, always place in situations when and where the test will be more effective to strengthen and advance our eternal nature. And if we pass the test, if we observe the commandments, if we live by every word that proceeded forth from the mouth of God, the great promise we find in Abraham that they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever, or what we read in Moses, the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient will be our blessing, our eternal reward. Now, eternal life or God's life, consists of two things. One is to receive the fullness of the glory of the Father. Another is to have continuation of this seed forever and ever. In other words, to live in an eternal family unit. There's no way that our minds can conceive anything so as great, as glorious, as eternal life, because that is God's life. And what is greater? Than him. So eternal life is what we seek. And in the words of, of Joseph Fielding Smith, who said, to know the way to eternal life is far more important than all the learning that the world can give. The plan of salvation has been established to enable us to obtain that eternal destiny. Again, in the family, a proclamation to the world, it says, we find the following statement. The divine plan of happiness 
enables family relationship to be perpetuated beyond the grave. Sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples make it possible for individuals to return to the presence of God and for families to be united eternally. I repeat, to return to the presence of God and for families to be uni united eternally. That is the promise. That is the destination. At this time, I would like to ask for the help of two of the prophets of this dispensation to be give comfort and answer some questions that can arise in the hearts of faithful young people of the Church. First, President Lorenzo Snow said, There is no Latter-day Saint who dies after having lived a faithful life who will lose anything because of having failed to do certain things when opportunities were not furnished him or her. In other words, if a young man or woman has no opportunity of getting married, and they live faithful lives, up to the time of their death, they will have all the blessings, exaltations, and exaltation and glory that any man or woman will have who had the opportunity and improve it. That is sure and positive. And President Arthur Jack Benson also made this comment. Not all women in the church will have an opportunity for marriage and motherhood immortality. But if you in this situation are worthy and ensure faithfully and endure faithfully, you can be assured of all blessings from a kind and loving Heavenly Father. And I emphasize all blessings. Now, Maybe we can now review some basic principles which can help us in our eternal fami familial relationship and which can help us prepare our ourselves to meet God. Let me talk to you who are now uh, or will be husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, to you children of God of divine origin and eternal destination. Chief among the organizational arrangements and for ordination in the pre-mortal existence was the organization of lineage and family. Offices and position in the church or earthly kingdom would be important, but this would be only for time and season, while relationships associated with the family are to endure throughout the endless eternities. Elder David Omake at that time said the following about the family as an eternal unit. Latter-day Saints. The responsibility of saving this sacred institution devolves largely upon you, for you know that the family ties are eternal. They should be eternal. There is nothing temporary in the home of the Latter-day Saint. There is no element of transitoriness of the Latter-day Saint's home. That of such ties are eternal should be maintained. To the Latter-day Saints, the home is truly the cell unit of society, and parenthood is next to godhood. And also, the prophet and president Gordon B. Hinckley said, Our Father in heaven, who loves his children, desires for them that which will bring them happiness now and in the eternities to come, and there is no greater happiness than is found in the most meaningful of all human relationships, 
the companionships of husband and wife and parents and children. What a brilliant objective, eternal family. Eternal families are not created simply through the birth of children. Strong families, ties do not happen by chance. To assume that eternal families will be developed through osmosis or by the mere fact that we are members of the church and that our children have been born in the covenant only which is only wishful thinking, is only an expression of desire. Family unit, u- unity is, f- is forged by time, patience, service, teaching, and sacrifice. Eternal life is family life. In order to accomplish that great objective, we must live worthy lives because our Heavenly Father wants obedience from His children. He wants a man to marry a wife by his word, which is his law, and by the new and everlasting covenant. It is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise. He wants a home where spouses remember their marriage, vows, and honor them. He wants a home where the father is devoted to the family with which he has been blessed a home where union, love, and understanding between father and mother and also between parents and children prevail. He wants a home where, in the words of President Spencer W. Kimball, a father who procreates, provides, and loves, and directs, and a mother who conceives, and bears, and nurtures, and feeds, and trains. For example, see what President Harold B. Lee had to say about the role of the father. Fatherhood is leadership, the most important kind of leadership. It has always been so. Father, with the assistance and counsel and encouragement of your eternal companion, you preside in the home. It is not a matter of whether you are most worthy or best qualified but it's a matter of, how, uh, of law and appointment. You preside at the meal table, at family prayer. You preside at family home evening. And as guided by the Spirit of the Lord, you see that your children are taught correct principle. It is your place to give direction relating to all family life. You give Father's blessings. You take an active part in establishing family rules and discipline. As a leader in your home, you plan and sacrifice to achieve the blessings of a unified and happy family. To do all this requires that you live a family-centered life. Also, President Lee said this, the most, and you remember this famous words, the most important of the Lord's work that you ever do will be the work you do within the walls of your own home. Now, what is the most important priesthood calling that a man in the church can have? Can he have any greater influence in the kingdom of God than the influence he has in the life of his family members? Is he as concerned about magnifying his call as a husband and father as he is about his other callings in the church? President Kimball said, to begin to strengthen the priesthood, brethren, we must return the Father to their divinely appointed place.
place at the head of the family. As father ourselves, we must ensure that we do not neglect our own families. We should be teaching our people over and over again that the most important position in time and eternity is that of the father. And in the family, a proclamation to the world, this concept is amply ratified. By divine design, fathers are to preside over the, their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their family. In Moses 1.39 we read, This is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Likewise, we could say that this is the glory of man and woman, to bring to pass the immortality of the sons and daughters of God, to give the opportunity of earth experience to the children of our Father who are waiting to come, to participate in the great experience of this, the second state. So the, great, the greatest mission of woman through an honorable marriage is to give life, we must say earth life, to those spirits, our Heavenly Father's children who desire to come to this mortal state to advance in knowledge, experience, and challenges in order to accomplish what is outlined in the plan of salvation. What a great honor and glory. What an ever-enduring happiness to become the mother of these sons and daughters of God, not only for giving them earthly life, but also for bringing them by a careful and devoted motherhood to transit on the path which leads to eternal life. Providing opportunity for the spirit children of our Father in heaven to come to earth and work out their own salvation with the consequent great price which mother paid to make this possible is not for sure the whole responsibility of motherhood. In the family, a proclamation to the world, we read, mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. I would recommend to you to go and study the meaning of the word nurture and its implications. I'm sure you will have a better and more profound understanding of what the first president said in 1942. The divine service of motherhood can be rendered only by mothers. It may not be passed to others. Nurses cannot do it. Public nurses cannot do it. Hired help cannot do it. Only mother, aided as much as may, may be by the loving hands of fathers, brothers, and sisters, can give the full measure of watchful care. The mothers who entrust her child to the care of others, that she may do non-motherly work, whether for gold, for fame, or for civic service, should remember that a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. In our days, the Lord has said that unless parents teach their children the doctrine of the church, the sin be upon the heads of their parents. Motherhood is near to divinity. It is the highest, holiest service to be assumed but may, by mankind. It places her who honors its holy calling and service 
next to the angels. That is the end of the First Presidency quote. I would like to make clear now at this point that we understand that there is not a superiority factor in the husband and wife relationship or in the, in the roles that they play as they walk as a family in all righteousness to the mansion of exalt, exaltation ahead. The roles of father and mother are equally important, but not identical. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said the following, in the two, true patriarchal order, man holds the priesthood and it's the head of the home household of faith, but he cannot attain a fullness of joy here or of eternal reward hereafter alone. Woman stand at his side, a joint inheritor with him in the fullness of all things. Exaltation and eternal increase is her lot as well as his. Godhood is not for men only. It is for men and women together. And Elder John Ad Witzow emphasized the concept in these words. By divine fiat, the priesthood is comfort on the man. It means that organization must prevail in the family, the ultimate unit of the church. The husband, the priesthood bearer, preside over the family. The priesthood conferred upon him is intended for the blessings of the whole family. Every member shares in the, uh, shares in the gift bestowed, but under a proper organization. No man who understands the gospel believes that he is greater than his wife or more beloved of the Lord because he holds the priesthood, but rather that he is under the responsibility of speaking and acting for the family in official matters. It is a protection to the woman who, because of her motherhood, is under a large physical and spiritual obligation. Motherhood is an eternal part of the priesthood. Now, we can take, for example, the responsibility of presiding righteously, righteously in the home. If we understand that the priesthood is power and authority delegated by God to men on earth to act on, in his behalf in the name of Jesus Christ, we will come to the conclusion that to possess the priesthood is to have the privilege of calling down the powers of heaven to assist in fulfilling sacred responsibilities and opportunities. Priesthood power is delegated to mankind in order to assist Heavenly Father and the Savior in their glorious work to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In Doctrine and Covenant 121 says, Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? because their hearts are set so much upon the things of this world and aspire the honors of men that they do not learn this one lesson, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven, and that the power of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. Then the priesthood has been given to mankind so that families may have righteous leadership. In other words, a representative of God to lead them. This blessing is providing, of providing righteousness, righteous leadership 
in the family should also be shared with wives. President Faust has said, quote, it is an unrighteous exercise of priesthood, author uh, priesthood authority for a man as a conduit through his priesthood office to withhold or limit blessings which should flow through the priesthood to his wife and family. The priesthood blessings are not just male or husband limited, but reach their potential flowering in the eternal relationship of the husband and wife sharing and administering these great blessings to the family. Our wives have priesthood blessings, though no priesthood office. Those blessings are the keys to eternal life, salvation and exaltation through obedience." End of the quote. Fidelity in marriage is a very important ingredient in having a fa happy family, happy family life here and giving the, us the assurance of looking forward to a resumption of that family life beyond the veil. Section 42 of Doctrine and Covenant revelation that the prophet Joseph Smith specified as embracing the law of the church provides significant divine information relative to marriage and fidelity. The Lord declares in this revelation that men are to love their wives with all their hearts and are to cleave unto her and none else. President Kimball explained the meaning of this commandment in this way. And when the Lord says, all thy heart, it allows for no sharing, no dividing, nor depriving. And to the women, it is paraphrased, thou shalt love thy husband with all thy heart and shalt cleave unto him and none else. The word none else eliminate everyone and everything. The spouse then becomes preeminent in the life of the husband or wife and neither social life, nor occupational life, nor political life, nor any other interest, nor person, nor thing, shall ever take precedence over the companion spouse. We sometimes find women who absorb and hover over the children and the, at the expense of the husband, sometimes even estranging them from him. The Lord says to them, Thou shalt cleave unto him and none else. End of the quote. In Doctrine and Covenant says, and that he looketh upon a woman to last after her shall deny the faith and shall now have the spirit. And if he repents, not he shall be cast out. This reinforce, reinforces the teaching of the master. As a man thinketh, so is he. And that one usually first become unfaithful in the mind and later in his deeds. President Faust has said, our loyalty to our eternal companion should not be merely physical, but mental and spiritual as well, since there are no harmless frustration or no place for jealousy after marriage. It is best to avoid the very appearance of evil by shining any questionable contact with another to whom we are not married. End of that quote. The influence we have with other people is measured by the trust they have in us. If people do not trust us, they will not pay little attention to us. They will, not, they will pay little attention to us.
But if their confidence in us is deep, they will withhold little or nothing from us. It is that way with our relationship to our Heavenly Father. We are blessed only in proportion to our faith in Him. And isn't that faith easily interpreted in terms of trust? We believe God will help us because we trust Him. If we have not, not trust in the Almighty, we would neither pray to Him nor keep His commandment. Do you remember the words of Nephi? Let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, He is mightier than all the earth. The Lord is able to do all things according to His will. For the children of men, if it be so be that they exercise faith in Him, wherefore, let us be faithful to Him. And as we see that the commandments of God must be fulfilled, and if it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, He doth nourish them and strengthen them and provide means whereby that they can accomplish the thing which He has commanded them. There are many more examples in the life of Nephi. But if we, fo we follow President Gordon B. Hinckley because his life has established trust and love in our hearts. Because we trust him, we follow him, and thus is the church enlarged. That same kind of trust must abide in our families. Husband and wife must trust each other and live in a way that will merit such confidence. There is no substitute for fidelity. And in the same way, parents must earn the trust of their children. How can that be accomplished? By providing unfailing companionship, by setting the proper examples to follow, and by teaching the divine precepts that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what the psalmist tells us about our children. Lo, children, are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Good family life in this earth is vital to our enjoyment of family life in the realms of our Heavenly Father. For that testimony which dwells in our heart, we go to the temple and marry therein. For that reason we have children and rear them according to the principle of the gospel so they may continue in our family circles in the eternities to come. Why would God make us spend so many hours, years of our life on the earth, raising offspring, rearing our children, his children? One answer might be that man's growth includes learning to be part of a family, particularly learning to be a parent. God is not raising children, he's raising parents, parents who can someday fulfill the eternal role of parents as God fulfill his. In a general conference address, President G. Ruben Clark expressed the following. I would like you to reflect upon the fact that our children came to us with a spirit that did not ask us to bring them, but with a spirit 
through some operation of which I am not aware, that are assigned to us. And they came to us as our guest. We are responsible for the mortal tabernacling of that spirit. And I should like each and every Latter-day Saint to get that fact into his heart, that the child which is his or hers comes at the invitation virtually of them who beget it. And then I would like you to reflect upon the responsibility which that brings home to each and every man and woman who is a parent. Yours is the responsibility to see that this tabernacle spirit loses no opportunity through you to prove his worthiness and righteousness in living through his second state. Now, the point that I particularly want to emphasize is this. You, parent, cannot shift that responsibility to anyone else. It is yours. You cannot divest yourself of it. Maybe we can repeat now the fundamental concept which we have been mentioning. We have been begotten and born of heavenly parents. God is our eternal Father, the Father of us all. In consequence, we are His children, and therefore we belong to His family. Since we are to become like Him, perfect, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, family life is vital for the Latter-day Saints, or in the words of Elder Darling H. Oaks of the Council of the Twelve, our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. Under the merciful plan of the Father, all of this is possible through the atonement of the only begotten of the Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As earthly parents, we participate in the gospel plan by providing mortal bodies for the spirit children of God, the fullness of eternal salvation is a family matter. End of the quote. With these concepts in, my, in mind, and at the same time, we can ask ourselves the question, will a father desire that his children have every good thing that he has? The, the answer can be, surely. That is what a good father will desire. So it isn't logical to think that in the beginning, when God and our mother begot us and brought us forth in the spirit world, their great desire for us was that we become like them. In order to make that desire a reality, as we strive to be good children, we make every effort to be good parents. The eternal reward, the desire, an objective to reach is exaltation or eternal life. It's the kind of life which God lives. It's continuation of the family in eternity. It's eternal increase. It's to inherit all things. It's to receive all that our Father has. May we be blessed as we journey in this segment of eternity, living the gospel, following the great exemplar, even Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.